Welcome to this Innovation Forum webinar held in collaboration with the Accountability Framework and CDP. I'm Ian Welsh from Innovation Forum and I'll be your host for the next hour or so. Today we're going to be discussing the findings and their implications from a new joint report from AFI and CDP. From commitments to action at scale, critical steps to achieve deforestation-free supply chains. The report's release coincides, of course, with the World Economic Forum's meetings at Davos and provides some of the critical steps for action that business needs to plot a route to net zero on anything like the timelines that are necessary to ease the climate crisis. It's now eight years since companies and governments came together under the New York Declaration on Forests, committing to end deforestation. The initial 2020 deadline is already well in the rearview mirror, and we have instead seen a continued rise in deforestation rates. To meet net zero goals and ensure a climate resilient future, companies need to quickly accelerate systems and processes to manage their impacts on forests. So to discuss all of this, I'm delighted to be joined by an expert panel. We have Juliana Lopez, ESG Communications and Compliance Director at Amagi. We have Katerina Elias Trossman, Head of ESG and Sustainability for Brazil with BN Paribas. Leah Sandberg, Lead Scientist in Global Policy at the Rainforest Alliance and Thomas Maddox, Global Director of Forests and Lands at CDP. Welcome to you all. And today's webinar is the latest piece of content in our partnership with the Accountability Framework. So our thanks to the AFI team for their support in bringing our panel together today. So I'll bring our panel in very shortly, but we do want to hear from you all too. So please do submit points and questions using Zoom's Q&A function, and I'll put them to our panel a little later on. So use the Q&A function rather than the chat today, please. I do try and keep your questions short and to the point, and the shorter and more to the point they are, the more likely they are to be used. Right, well, let's get things started. Um, Leah and Tom uh, have prepared a short presentation for us just to outline some of the findings from the new report. So, Leah, let me hand over to you. Uh, thanks so much, Ian. And uh, thanks everyone for, for joining today. I'm really excited to get to discuss this report and talk a little bit about what we've learned and, and hear all of your thoughts about it. Um, so next slide, please. So many of you are probably familiar with the Accountability Framework Initiative, which is a coalition working to increase the clarity and consistency of expectations for agriculture and forestry supply chains free of deforestation, ecosystem conversion, and human rights abuses. The accountability framework itself is a roadmap to support companies in this process, organized around 12 core principles, laying out best practice for setting policies and commitments on these topics, implementing them through supply chain management, monitoring and collaboration, and reporting progress. And these uh, core principles form the structure of the report that we're gonna discuss today. So you'll see these again. Um, a primary objective of, of the AFI and a primary use of the framework is to really increase the standardization and alignment of many of the reporting and assessment platforms, a lot of which are seen here, that define company performance so that expectations are clear and progress is reported in consistent and meaningful ways. Um, CDP has been a, a key partner in this effort from the beginning, uh, fully revising their forest questionnaire to align with the framework and continuing to add and improve indicators to ensure consistency with emerging best practice. In this way, uh, the CDP Forest Questionnaire can be used to, by companies as a tool to report against the principles of the framework and communicate progress towards good practice. And that's really what allows us the opportunity to um, have this conversation we're having today. So I'm gonna now turn it to Tom to talk about CDP and the data behind the report. Thanks, Leah. Yes, the next slide. Thank you very much. Uh, so yes, I'll just say a couple of words on who CDP are, for those of you that are not familiar with us, and, and give a few introductory words on the report, and then I'll hand back to Leah to do a little bit of a deep dive into some of the issues. So for those of us, uh, so for those of you that uh, are not aware of CDP, uh, we're basically, uh, our theory of change is based around the idea that, that transparent disclosure of where you are on your environmental performance is absolutely key to driving change. It's the first step you need to do for driving change. So we've created this environmental disclosure mechanism for, for companies, also for cities, for states and regions. And the, and the way it works is that every year, a group of investors, major buyers, put out a disclosure request to the companies that they invest in or they buy from, and they ask them to disclose on their performance to CDP. They can disclose through a climate questionnaire where they are on their journey to, to 1.5, 
on the water questionnaire where they are on uh, freshwater abstraction and pollution or on their forest questionnaire, which as Leah uh, mentioned, is aligned with the principles uh, of AFI and it looks at where you are on removing deforestation from your supply chains. Uh, the results are then scored uh, and, and change is driven in three main ways. First of all, the results go back to those investors and the buyers and it, and it helps them inform their decision making. Secondly, just by going through the process of reporting through CDP, it helps a lot of companies recognize where they need to improve and helps them compare against peers and so on. And then thirdly, the results are used to inform others, for example, in the development of regulatory standards or new policies and so on. So last year we had responses from over 13,000 companies representing over 96% of the FTSE 100 and a little short of about, uh, just under a thousand of those responded to the forest questionnaire. So next slide, please. So today's re report focuses on the uh, 2021 responses to the forest questionnaire um, and, and how these can be used to assess company progress on implementing the AFI principles uh, that they introduced a second ago. Uh, it focuses particularly on companies reporting on the key commodities that drive deforestation. So that's palm oil, timber, cattle and soy, the big ones, and also rubber, cocoa and coffee. And for these, we had 675 companies reporting on those commodities. So the report that, that's, that's been launched today, that the headline really is probably a message that's fairly familiar to, to everyone that's been working on environmental issues over the last few years, which is there's progress, but it's just not enough. So on the positive side, it shows that companies reporting to CDB are taking action on most, if not all, in most cases, of the AFI principles. So, for example, most companies reporting had a policy related to no deforestation. Most are doing something about cascading this commitment back down through their supply chains. Most companies have some level of traceability being implemented, um, and most are using some level of certification. But when you look in a little bit more detail, most of these are only covering the first steps. So, for example, of the companies with policies, only a third of those are public and company-wide policies. Of those engaging with their suppliers, uh, a minority are providing to um, direct or technical financial assistance, which is really where the most useful thing. And only a third of them are extending the engagement down to the level of smallholder. And of those implementing traceability mechanisms, only a quarter have implemented those to the level they can actually implement or monitor um, uh, as they go along. And then for those, of those, for those of them employing certification, only 7% can use it to the extent that they can say at least 90% of the commodity in question comes from a certified zero deforestation source. Now I'm gonna hand back to Leah to drill down into some of those results. Great, thanks so much, Tom. Um, so as those uh, findings that, that Tom ran through made clear, uh, companies are in many different places in their efforts to establish and scale up systems to identify and address deforestation and conversion. And uh, I think the analyses in this report allow us to get a better look at this variability and not just these top line numbers. Um, so I'm gonna take a few minutes to highlight some examples um, of, of what's in this report. Um, I'm not, there's a lot more in there, so I encourage you all to go look at it later, but I'm gonna pull out a few examples of where we can see this tension between, um, you know, sort of some good, relatively good top line numbers, but then underneath that, um, a lot of variability and need for scale. So next slide, please. So while only a third of companies, as Tom said, have these company-wide public no deforestation or conversion commitments, those commitments that are in place largely follow good practice for ambition and timeframe. Uh, so for example, we found that 92% of them have target dates indicating when the company intends to have fully implemented those commitments. 75% have target dates of 2025 or earlier, which meets uh, AFI's current recommendation for appropriate ambition for these commitments. Um, in addition, the report found that 74% of these commitments have cutoff dates for allowable conversion of 2020 or earlier, um, which is also in line with the framework's guidance on this topic. So while a minority of companies do have these robust reports, we're finding robust commitments, excuse me, we're finding that um, the ones that do exist are, are um, sort of really outlying the, the proper level of ambition and timeframe. Next slide, please. So supply chain traceability is, is I think a big feature of, of what we're looking at in this report. It's an essential precondition for achieving supply chain goals, including forest as well as climate commitments and others. And the data in our report show that levels of traceability vary very widely, both within and between commodity contexts. So um, as this figure, which is from the report can show, 
Um, for each commodity, up to 20% of companies can trace half of their volumes to the point of origin, indicating that full traceability can be achieved in many contexts. Um, and for some commodities, many companies have traceability to a processing facility or a municipality. Um, and com those companies should continue to improve visibility into their supply chain, a lot may be known about deforestation and conversion risk at this level. However, across all these commodities, uh, many companies cannot trace half their volumes past the level of a country or a first subnational jurisdiction like a state. So there's still really a long way to go across all of these commodities in achieving um, sort of the requisite traceability to really understand the, the, the footprint of the supply chain. Um, next slide, please. Following onto traceability, uh, companies must be able to monitor progress against no deforestation or conversion targets in order to make informed decisions for improvement and provide accurate information to their stakeholders. Uh, so we found in this report that um, more than a quarter of companies with uh, these commitments do not report having any monitoring systems in place. And so really are not yet able to determine their level of compliance with the commitments they've made. Um, so really sort of a real gap there on the monitoring end. Um, of those that do monitor compliance with no deforestation or conversion commitments, uh, the most common uh, approach in most commodity contexts is third-party certification, which is used um, you know, to see really across the board to try to fulfill a lot of this monitoring function. Um, the use of geospatial monitoring tools in the red bars here is sort of the second most in most commodities, um, most common. So sort of a variety of different ways that, that companies are trying to understand uh, what's going on in their supply chains. Well, what you would see here <laughs> is uh, the last data that I'll talk about today. Uh, so uh, when downstream companies are able to monitor the compliance of their suppliers, uh, they must then have in place procedures to manage those suppliers found to be non-compliant. So um, of, the, of the companies we looked at, 242 companies responded to questions about management of supplier non-compliance uh, with these no deforestation or no conversion policies. Um, these companies indicated a mix of approaches to engagement uh, with the retain and engage approach, the most common, I think, I'm not seeing the slide, but I think 65% of the, the companies who responded to this question um, reported uh, using a retain and engage approach for, for non-compliant suppliers. Um, and about a third of companies indicated that there were cases in which suppliers were excluded from supply chains entirely due to non-compliance. Um, companies were able, also able to report um, their engagement to address um, the supplier non-compliance. And uh, this can include providing information developing time-bound improvement plans for suppliers and uh, working through um, supplier questionnaire and, and information gathering tools to better understand supplier performance. And in some cases, uh, companies reported reintegrating suppliers based on completion of improvement processes. That was a lot of information, uh, but stepping back, these disclosures paint a picture of a point in time in which leading companies are taking necessary steps to address commodity-driven deforestation. But in most cases, these actions must be scaled up made more comprehensive and be adopted by a far greater number of companies if we wanna meet the urgency of deforestation, climate and biodiversity crises that we're facing. So yeah, we encourage you to check out the report for more information and to get in touch with any questions. Thanks. Thanks, thanks so much, Leah. Apologies for the uh, slight hiccup with the slides. Uh, these things happen, um, but uh, thanks very much indeed. Um, and it was great to see you knew your numbers so well you didn't even need to have the slide there. Um, so thanks very much for that. Um, I put a link to the report into the chat functions to do, to go there, and we will share the slides as well with everybody. Um, now, there were some specific questions about uh, the, uh, the slides already come in, um, and Tom, I saw that you were going to, uh, you volunteered to answer them live already. So, but a quick question about how the answers to the questionnaires are verified, Tom. Yep, sure. Um, so, the, the responses to CDP, it's all self-disclosure. Uh, so it's a very valid question how they verified. And the, the volume we get in now is it's, it's impossible for us to manually verify everything. But, but, the, but the responses are verified in a couple of ways. So first of all, we ask whenever a, a question is asked, um, if it requires an answer such as, are you certified? And say yes, then there has to be uploaded evidence of what that certification is. Um, and so that's that's one way that things get verified. We also have sort of various cross-checking amongst different questions that may be asking the same thing in different ways. Um, the third way of, of verifying uh, information and possibly the most powerful way is that the companies get asked to, to disclose this information from their investors or sometimes from their buyers uh, and that they know that the information is going back to those stakeholders. Um, so I think there, there's also some... Um, uh, 
obligation on them to, to be telling the truth when the, the information is going back to their investors. So that's, and, and I guess they could get into trouble if, if they're not putting the correct information there. So that's another way that the system sort of self-verifies. Um, I, I was going to say a little bit on the, on the second question around indirect suppliers, if, if you want me to continue with that one. Um, sure, just jump on that now, please do. Uh, and, then, and then I'll uh, give Leo a, a chance to respond as well, because actually I think since the question came in, you, you covered that a little bit in your uh, in your slides there, Leo. Um, but it's again, it, it's it's a good question um, whether companies are engaging further down uh, supply chain with indirect suppliers. Um, and the results of the report show that when engagement happens, most of it is with direct suppliers and much less with indirect suppliers. From memory, I think it was a one third uh, of those that engage actually get down to the level of smallholder and, and production level. Um, but please check the report for, the, for that uh, fact. There were examples um, of good practice. Uh, I think one of the ones we feature in the report is uh, Marfrig was a good example of, uh, of a company that does get down to the level of engaging with smallholders. Um, and one of the other issues we cover in there is, is looking at how companies um, have um, uh, compliance mechanisms if, if, they're, if, if they're holding suppliers to account. Um, and there's an example of Cow Corporation that is one of the um, uh, companies that's reporting good practices on how they hold suppliers to account. Um, but but the, the question is valid that most, most of the engagement happens direct. And that's one of the areas that we need to improve is, is engagement further down the supply chain and with more tangible physical help, with, so financial help and, and um, direct help in that way. Leah, do you want to add anything to that? I think just to say that um, of the companies who were asked about indirect supplier engagement, uh, so traders, manufacturers, or retailers, I think that half did indicate working with, with at least some of their indirect suppliers, which I actually thought was a, was a promising number. Um, I think that represents a wide variety of different uh, different types of engagement, but it was um, it, it did seem to be a, a positive a positive figure. Great, thank you, Leon, and thank you, Tom. Some great questions coming in already. Do keep them coming. We'll get to them a bit later on. But um, you may have noticed you can also um, you can also rank and, and like the questions yourself. So if you like a question, hit the like hit the thumbs up like button, and it'll rise up the ranking. It'll be certain to be the ones that um, we we get and deal with later on. Right. Um, let me turn to you, Juliana. Uh, welcome to the webinar. Uh, perhaps give us a quick sentence of context setting introduction to Amagi, and then could you explain your approach to monitoring verification and non-compliance and how the accountability framework and other complementary tools uh, help in this process. Juliana. Okay, so um, just to give a little information about Amagi uh, and our supply chain, uh, Amagi has its own soy and corn cotton production, but it's responsible for only 6% of the total volume that Amagi uh, trades on soy. So uh, buying from the producers is our biggest volume representative. Uh, in our trading division, we work uh, with a monitoring process uh, and we use our own system, which is called, called Originar 2.0. We launched our system some years ago. Uh, we used to have third parties, uh, other systems, third uh, party systems but we decided to look into our own systems with all the information that we needed not to use only as a risk mitigation, but creating opportunities for our value chain. And uh, this is where we, we created our own system. Right now, uh, we are already able to monitor 99% of the soy that we source from the Amazon biome and the Cerrado biome. Uh, from this 99% of monitoring, uh, we already check on the last report that we presented at the half of last year, that 99% of those producers were already zero deforestation, zero conversion, at least since 2017, and there was no deforestation conversion on 2020 uh, for soy production. It is still a challenge for us. Uh, because we have a target to, by the end of this year, to monitor 100% of our direct suppliers in this entire country of Brazil. Uh, we started with the 
risky ones, the risky biomes like the Cerrado and the Amazon, but we want to monitor 100% of our suppliers. And we want to achieve 100% of our indirect suppliers also by 2025 and include uh, uh, Argentina and Paraguay as well. Even though they are not that much representative of the soy we source from, they are a little bit less than 3%. So uh, every time we report, we use the guidance of accountability framework as well. So if you look into our progress report, is the second one that we already launched, they follow uh, uh, almost everything in the accountability framework guidance. And we think this is useful because it, it, it uh, allows for the companies to have not only the guidance, but the ones, the stakeholders that are reading the report, it gets easier for them to understand each part of the report. So uh, I think this is something that is useful. Sometimes we have some discussions about if we are going to be able to report everything as accountability framework, but we try to do as most as we can. Thank you. So it sounds like um, things that you've been really reasonably successful. You mentioned that 99% um, of your soy crop uh, monitored. So to what extent is it monitored? Is it to the farm you're able to do that? Or how far into the supply chain can you go? It's a farm level uh, already. And I think we have the only system that has a full polygonal, as we talked to. So we know exactly what are the boundaries of each farm. So uh, when we analyze, just to give you some uh, information, it's about 6,000 uh, farms that we monitor every day. Uh, and uh, this represents about 15 million hectares, which 9 million hectares is production area and 6 million hectares is native vegetation area. Uh, so this is daily monitoring our system. Great. Okay. Um, cost implications. Obviously, any change, any improvements have cost implications. And one of the great debates around these sort of conversations is always, well, who pays for the, for the change? What's your view on how best to distribute the, the costs of change, the upfront costs of change, I mean, over, the, over the piece there may be, um, be savings, but the upfront costs of change in value change, how, how should they be shared? Uh, I think in the, I've been in this business for 16 years. So I would say that in the beginning, all the cost was uh, through the producers. The cost of everything was around the producers. And the, the market has realized that this is not possible because it's not the, their only responsibility. But I still think that the market doesn't know how to do a spread of the cost between the whole value chain. And it goes to the ones that has a, a, a they are more connected to the producers, but it has to go through the whole value chain, including not only the trading companies, but the retailers, consumer goods, uh, the financial sector. I think everybody has to share a little bit of the cost of this implementation. Of course, when you go to a monitoring process, it really depends on the company, uh, 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 how far they can go with the, the budget that they have. So uh, it, it is not simple and you need to have a very good idea on, from the management, especially from the board, uh, what kind of the, what are the type of information that you want to use and what are the type of information that you have public access and you have a guarantee on the source. So everything needs to be combined. And I think this is where it takes time because you need to develop the system. You need to look into a whole strategy of the company. Uh, just to give an overview, we wanted a, a, a system that was not only looking to risk mitigation, but creating opportunities. Right now, I'm able to know exactly what are the extra areas of legal reserve. So what are the, the, the areas that the producers are conserving without their having the duties to do that according to the legislation. So this is where payment for environmental service can be very useful, but also where I know exactly where are their legal reserves, I'm able to monitor and create a carbon stock. So I'm able to provide the information for my clients, 
how much of carbon stock. It's not the same thing, but you can create a, a, a story that goes to your product as well of preservation. So we wanted to create this system, but we took at least two years discussing internally in our company, what was our strategy on monitoring? Because it was not only monitoring, how to create opportunities for the whole value chain. Thank you very much indeed. Uh, collaboration, uh, I wanted to ask you a little bit about that. Uh, we hear a lot about collaboration now, uh, everyone talk about how important it is and, and, and actually you know, real collaboration. To what extent do you believe that um, this sort of change in the action um, that's required is reliant on collaboration, particularly at a, at a jurisdictional or, or landscape level? Uh, what are the barriers to that as well? First, I would say that collaboration is key, but if you use collaboration and the jurisdictional approach as a silver bullet, thinking that they are going to solve everything, you are wrong because you need to work first in your supply chain. Otherwise, you, cannot, you do not create the robustness that the stakeholder thinks that you really have on your policy for deforestation and no conversion. Um, so I think it's a matter of how do I see the problem and how do I see the context? Looking at the Amagi, just to, to give that as an example, uh, we are going to have 100% of no deforestation, no conversion shortly. Uh, we already have this in our uh, supply chain from the Amazon biome and Cerrado biome. However, even if I have a zero deforestation conversion supply chain, there is still going to happen deforestation and conversion in the sector that I operate and in the area that I operate because it has other sectors also work in the same area. This is where collaboration has to happen because this is where I need to act with other sectors and between my own sector, because this will solve the issues of deforestation from those commodities. However, there is going out another step because if you look into Brazil, 94% of deforestation is illegal. So even though you are only buying legal deforestation commodities, 94% are going to still happen. So this is where engagement and working with governments are key because otherwise you are not going to solve the problem. I'm going to solve it. All the sectors operate really well, 6% of the problem and the other 94. And it, this is going to be very hard for the whole supply chain, the whole value chain, because there is going to keep having deforestation in Brazil and it's going to be very difficult for the retailers, for example, to explain the consumers that they are buying zero deforestation, zero conversion products, but they still see in the news a lot of deforestation happening. It's going to be very hard for them to explain that. So this is where you need to work in a more cooperative uh, uh, approach, in a jurisdictional approach, because this is where everything is going to be combined. But everything starts with your on commitment first, if you are able to deliver the results of the commitment that you made, because this is where you create that people will uh, uh, believe that your commitments are on the right track and they can trust you and you can be a good partner to do other things. Great. Thank you. So I, I like that point. About credible commitments. Very important. Um, thanks so much indeed, Juliana. Lots of can come back on. Thanks everyone for your questions. Uh, do remember to uh, like them, and uh, again, the, the hierarchy of questions will uh, will be the ones that we will answer first. Katerina, uh, welcome. Thank you very much for your patience. Uh, perhaps give us a quick uh, sentence of context setting, um, and then I'd be interested to hear how you frame your financing policy at uh, BNP Paribas, and and in doing so, how the accountability framework and other initiatives help. Katerina. Sure. Um, I have all the patience in the world if I'm listening to people like Juliana, Leah and, and Tom. So thanks very much for having me. Um, my name is Katerina. I'm head of ESG and sustainability here at BNP Paribas in Brazil. So I'm in, based in Sao Paulo. Um, in Brazil, we're a, we are a corporate and investment bank. So our clients are companies like Amaju. We don't go down to the farmer level. I think it's important to state here in terms of context. 
And we take um, sustainability, climate change extremely seriously. Um, it's a top-down initiative um, across the bank. It's integrated in our global strategic um, strategy. Um, and I see that Juliana put the first 500 ranking there. I'm, I'm glad to say that um, we topped the ranking for financial institutions, but maybe in a bittersweet way, because um, there's still so much more to do. We have a lot more to do ourselves. So how, are, how do we frame our policies? Um, we strive to be a bank that contributes to sustainability. We do that through several ways. One, by offering ESG products, so sustainable bonds, sustainability-linked loans, etc. So that's one way we do it. Another one is through financial commitments. For example, we've committed to mobilizing 250 million euros for startups linked to protecting biodiversity. But I think one of the most crucial ways um, is through policies, policies that govern financing and that also govern how we engage with clients all the way from the onboarding process through the know your client process to the credit committee decision making right so um every single product client transaction um is evaluated against our global csr framework within that framework we've defined nine sector policies for sectors that we consider high risk from a social environmental and increasingly now climate perspective as well so for example agriculture wood pulp palm oil um, defense nuclear unconventional oil and gas mining um and i always forget the other two sorry i can't um it's uh, quite early morning here um for agriculture for example we recently updated our policy in 2021 so last year based on the Accountability Framework Initiative. So tools like the AFR are extremely important. So we leverage the AFI, but we also leverage discussions with clients like Juliana. We spoke to Juliana and Amaji to understand where they're at, what gaps they're looking to fill and where they're going, because we really wanted to understand how are our clients currently tackling deforestation without assuming that they all have a homogenous approach. We really want to understand, you know, what are their starting points, what direction are they going in? Because our, our policies have to address what the sector is looking at and then also integrate best practice. So accountability framework initiative was one of them and also CDP forest questionnaires was another. So our policies are always developed in collaboration, um, you know, reflecting where our clients are going and what they're currently doing and the gaps that need to be filled. And also very much based on best practice externally from organizations like CDP, WRI, all these other technical NGOs, for example, that do great work that, um, which is I think maybe part of the collaboration also that Julian was, Juliana was talking about. It's not just collaboration in jurisdictions, but also between sectors. So we draw on a lot of work from the NGO sector, which um, helps us to define better policies. Great, thank you. Um Everyone talks a lot about uh, mainstreaming of all these issues. And I wonder if actually you could just give us an in insight into how that's happening or how much that's happening at BNP Paribas. I mean, how much are you seeing uh, your uh, mainstream risk uh, analyst colleagues or credit analyst colleagues coming to you and asking for explanations of all these areas, which are perhaps not what they were engaging with before? It's a really good question. So, um we operate on a, maybe it's worth just taking a step by explaining how we operate from a risk perspective. We have three lines of defense. So the first line of defense will be our bankers, for example, or my department, ESG and sustainability. We will be responsible for engaging with the clients, identifying risks, um, reporting them, collecting ESG data, analyzing, evaluating, etc. The second line of defense will include um, teams like credit management, credit analysts, um, risk teams, et cetera. And the third of line of defense will include teams like auditing, for example. So um, like I said, that, so the CSR policies, they really help to guide how we look at social, environmental and climate factors throughout the whole financial decision-making process. So more and more now um, in credit committees, we are being asked questions about biodiversity data, climate data, deforestation data. Um, we have that, that that's driven by how we manage our ESG data. So we have an ES, internal ESG platform that draws upon different ESG data providers like CDP, for example. So we have, the, we have you know, if you go onto our platform, we'll have for every single client, the, prof, the climate profile taken from the CDP questionnaires. Um, I'm trying to push for that. We also have the forest data in, this, in there as well for clients from the agriculture sector. And this is driving conversations on deforestation, on climate change in the credit committees that approve financing, right? So we'll have questions on, you know, what's the traceability? What's the traceability rate of the direct supply chain or the indirect supply chain? What is the ver verification and monitoring process of companies? Um, what is their decarbonization? What does their decarbonization strategy look like? 
there's still room gaps to I mean gaps to fill. So the questions aren't always uh, standardized. Um, and that's exactly where initiatives like the AFI come in, for example, where CDP comes in, helping us to really identify what are the key data points that we need to look at that are meaningful, that are credible, that actually have a material impact. Um, how can, you know, how can the entire financial sector in general be looking at the same types of data, working with the same types of information in order to align financial decision making? Because ultimately the goal is to shift financing away from unsustainable practices and towards practices that actually meaningfully contribute with reduced DHG emissions, reduced deforestation, et cetera. Thank you. Conscious that there are a lot of questions to come to, I want to ask you very, very briefly about uh, public policy. What do you think good public policy looks like that can help you and your colleagues and more broadly sustainable agriculture? Uh, and is due diligence necessarily the right way to go? So I think Juliana started touching upon that um, when she addressed policies both within Brazil, but also what we're seeing in the European Union. Policy is incredibly important. I think I actually don't get this question often enough. So the private sector definitely does not um, operate in a vacuum um, disconnected from wider public policy initiatives. And we need good, effective, um, we need an effective policy environment to support companies like Amaji to engage with deforestation. So if 94% or even 95% of deforestation is illegal, what does that say about the current policy environment? Um, I say current because that wasn't always the case. Brazil's had great success in reducing deforestation between 2004, 2012. Brazil reduced deforestation by over 72%. The Amazon biome is larger than Western Europe. It's huge. I mean, some of the states we're talking about, like Pará, is larger than France, right? So that's a Herculean effort to really monitor deforestation um, from that perspective and really mobilize resources on the ground to tackle what is a criminal and illegal activity, right? Um, I think another really interesting study is one from Professor Haoni Hajo. Um, it's called, I only remember the first two words, which is rotten apples. I don't remember the rest, but if you put in rotten apples into Google, Haoni Hajo, you'll find his study. He found that 2% of farms in Brazil are probably responsible for around 62% of illegally of soy that is decontaminated uh, the legal deforestation. That's it. So that that goes back to the risk-based approach, so really mobilizing resources to where deforestation is happening. Um, so from, from the perhaps the domestic perspective, we need a strong policy environment to mobilize resources to tackle what is a criminal activity. The dynamics of deforestation change. So this year is the first year that we've seen deforestation happening actually more on unprotected public forests. And then on the importer side, on the buyer side, we're seeing a lot of due diligence policies. The UK, Denmark, France, and the European Union, right, are all implementing different policies that will absolutely affect and drive um, the supply side as well, right? So looking at how do you limit um, the importation of deforestation? And that's super interesting. That's definitely going to happen. We know that our clients are getting ready for that, that they're fully aware of it. Um, so these policies need to converge. And I think, again, just going back to the Accountability Framework Initiative, it really helps to, um, as much, these policies need to be aligned with this best practice that we're seeing. So then we have alignment on the supplier side and alignment on the buyer side as well. Thanks very much. Uh, my colleague, B. Stevenson, has just put a link to that uh, report that uh, Catherine has referenced just now. Great, well, thanks very much indeed. Um, I want to turn to, uh, to quite obvious questions. Um, first one I want to bring up is uh, one that's top of our list is um, a question around uh, certification. And a questioner asks, um, is mandating third-party certification for a commodity a sufficient deforestation tool to implement policy? And Leah, you indicated you want to answer that. So Leah. Thanks, yeah, I can just answer that quickly. Um, so certification, third-party certification can be an appropriate tool for implementing a deforestation policy under certain circumstances. Um, and one is that the, the, the certification scheme uses an appropriate no deforestation criteria. So um, it defines, defines forests and ecosystems in an appropriate way and has a sort of a cutoff date for, for deforestation included in the criteria. Um, many certification systems do um, do this. Um, the next bar is the higher one, which is that it needs to be a, a segregated or an identity preserved chain of custody model in order to actually provide information about the deforestation footprint of those products. Um, so if you're sourcing from a, using a certification scheme that provides no deforestation assurance and you're searching, you're sourcing um, identity preserved or segregated material, 
then yes, that largely helps you meet um, sort of most of the, the framework's um, asks around sourcing deforestation-free material. Um, unfortunately, there is in many cases just a limited supply of that uh, identity preserved or segregated material. Um, I think about a th in, our, in the report, it says that about a third of companies indicated um, that they had they were unable to source enough certified material to meet their, their needs. So there's certainly a, a real barrier there. Um, other source chain of custody models such as mass balance can certainly be used uh, by a company on, on their journey towards deforestation free. It can sort of indicate um, both to these certification schemes, sort of a, a, this demand for higher levels of segregated material. It can also show sort of a progress by the company in terms of improving um, systems, but will really require further traceability in order to be um, provide deforestation free assurance. So yeah, quick answer to that one. Uh, Juliana, you want to come back in very quickly, please. Yes, just one thing, because I always mention that um, certification is also very important if you look into a sustainable product, because every time we discuss a lot about uh, uh, zero deforestation, zero conversion commodities, but we need to understand that sometimes uh, only certifications can address other issues. They normally have at least 100 indicators looking to human rights, uh, good governance, uh, good agricultural practices. So if you're looking for a sustainable product, I would say that certification is the right, the first way, the best way right now uh, to cover all these topics, because I don't think that the, the company should only look into deforestation as the issue. They should look into sustainability product, sustainable product as the issue. Okay, thank you very much indeed. Uh, our next question is from uh, David Wardell. Uh, asking if there are any explicit links between AFI and CDP reporting requirements regarding the recent initiatives such as the EU's new multi-commodity regulation. Tom, you wanted to answer that. Yes, yeah, so I'm, I'm happy to say a few words on that because um, I think it's one of the most sort of interesting areas of development at the moment um, in that, so we've been pushing disclosure for, for 20 plus years. Um, and one of the things we'd like to see is that disclosure becoming mandatory. Um, and for a long time, nothing has happened. And then suddenly lots is happening at the same time. Uh, you wait for a mandatory disclosure system to come along and suddenly three come along at once. Um, and, and I think that there are sort of three really key uh, developments in this area. So EU is doing some really interesting stuff around corporate uh, sustainability reporting, and that's probably the most relevant for forests at the moment. You know, they've got a much more comprehensive uh, approach. Um, but other really key sort of developments as, as well is the ISSB development, um, which is focusing on, on climate reporting at the moment. Um, but sort of next on the list, they'll be moving on to uh, wider nature issues, which will include forests and so on. Um, and also the developments in, in the US with the SEC on, on mandatory reporting on climate. Again, it's, it's, it's a step away from forests, but it's a step in the right direction. So all these things are happening at the same time. Um, with regards to the question, is there other explicit linkages with CDP? So in terms of the questionnaires, not yet, because none of these systems is, they're all sort of under consultation and they're developing at the moment, but it's absolutely crucial that we are aligned with them. Um, and there's two ways we're linking. First of all, that we're, we're feeding into the development of them. We're using our experience from our questionnaires to, uh, to help uh, develop them. Um, and then as they get developed, we need to be aligning with them and making sure that we're not sort of adding to the reporting burden that we at least cover what's covered in there, but add to it. But I think they're important because finally disclosure is suddenly starting to become mandatory in, in different jurisdictions. And, and it's a real sort of snowball that's starting to build. Thank you. Uh, Leah, so you want to come back in, but I do want to get to other questions. We've got 40 questions, obviously not going to answer all of them, but I do want to get through as many as we can. And I Please, short answer. So a quick question on ecosystem services. To what extent are payments for ecosystem services being used to incentivize conservation ahead of deforestation? Uh, Katerina, any thoughts on that? Do you have any comments on ecosystem service payments? Yeah, so we, um, um, like I said, we don't go down to the producer level. So maybe Juliana can add on that level. I think it's about how do you finance nature and provide incentives, right? We, it's really hard. We find it really difficult because we don't go down to producer level. We're trying to figure out how can we um, integrate incentives or provide benefits through our products, for example, that, that promotes either uh, protection, conservation, restoration. Um, so we're looking at different um, product structures, for example, that could provide incentives or benefits to farmers that have excess legal reserves 
just like Juliana was saying. So excess legal reserves means that farmers um, conserve na native vegetation above the legal requirements, and they actually have the legal rights to deforest that. So how do you monetize that in a way to promote um, long-standing forests? We're looking at that. We're using, we're, we're trying to identify blended finance mechanisms to um, increase the scale of large-scale forest restoration as well. So that's a, there's a huge opportunity in Brazil. Over 70 million hectares of degraded pasture land could be converted into natural ecosystems. How do you deploy finance at scale for that to happen? And you need the, the farmers on board. Farmers are asking, producers, farmers are asking for nature-based solutions and also um, payment for ecosystem services. So if it's okay, if I may nominate Juliana to provide the farmer view, but from the financial institution perspective, um, it's an emerging sector, um, emerging area of, of products um, where, you know, we're talking to IFAC, where we talk to a lot of Brazilian coalitions as well to identify how we can um, support clients in that transition. Thank you. Uh, Juliana, okay, please do give us insight, but very, very briefly, please. I do want to get to other questions. So very yeah, brief perspective. I think the, the, the biggest challenge is to be flexible and to almost like be punctual. To, to tackle with the producers because they have different realities. Normally, the finance mechanisms, they create something that are very uh, robust, I understand, but they do not tackle the reality on the ground. So for each producer, you have to act in a different way. So this is what I think it's missing the most. Thank you. Um, Juliana, I've got a question I want to put to you. Um, question... Uh, is around um, animal protein containing, containing soy. And the questioner points that um, many feed companies are being pressured by retailers um, to move away from soy meal from Latin America because traders can't offer assurance that the soy used to produce the meal didn't have deforestation in the last 20 years. Uh, and the soy, this can you know, have a significant impact or, on the carbon footprint. So how do you think this problem can be addressed? Do you have any thoughts on that? I think uh, maybe try to look into different suppliers. This is one of the key because I think the market has really uh, uh, stick to some of the, the sources they normally buy from. But if you're looking to GAG, just to give you an example, Amagi has uh, presented uh, uh, the carbon footprint of its soy delivered to the port of Rotterdam. Uh, it is five times lower than the average of Brazilian soy and it's lower than all the other carbon footprints from soy produced in Argentina, Ukraine, and other places uh, delivered to the port of Rotterdam due to good agriculture practice and other uh, uh, issues that we cover. So try to find uh, other possibilities because I think the market normally press a lot on the same stakeholder every time. And if you start to go to different suppliers, this stakeholder that you are pressing and they are not doing something, they will find a way to find something. Uh, Amaj is able to deliver uh, a, a very big volume, a very big percentage of the volume that is already zero deforestation, zero conversion. I have certified products that I do not sell to the market because I do not have the demand. So I think there is a lack of demand going to the right places. Great point, Juliana. Uh, thanks very much indeed. Uh, then move on. Um, due diligence, we've talked about. We've got another question, specifically thinking about uh, regulations for due diligence, such as those being developed in the EU. I'd like to add a little bit to that. Think about the unintended consequences of due diligence as well. There are some clear unintended consequences or things that might happen uh, if companies, for example, suddenly no longer source from, from higher risk uh, regions. Tom, do you want to comment on that? Yeah, and, and maybe there's there's some connection to the previous question on that as well. But I, I think you're right. There is there is this unintended consequence that um, I, I think a little bit like with the issues with climate change and oil and gas companies, with with some sort of selling their assets and moving across into renewable energy, it, it solves a problem for them, but it doesn't solve the problem overall because someone else buys them. Um, and so it's a, a similar situation with the with the soy we said before. So the I think the Sometimes it's right to move away and, and focus somewhere else, but the but the solution has got to be actually finding uh, finding solutions to the problem in the right places. So some of the some of the approaches that are, are outlined in the AFI principles and, and that we, we track in the report of how companies are doing it, um, it's about fixing the problems where they're occurring, not just running away from them, so to speak. Thank you. Do you want to 
talk a bit more about the current supply chain difficulties. I know you said you were going to answer this question, point around, you know, how are the current supply chain difficulties impacted by the war in Ukraine and, and other issues impacting efforts on deforestation, Tom? Oh, sure. Um, so, yeah, I, th I thought that was that was an interesting sort of area to raise. There wasn't a specific question in there, but it was it was something that I was expecting to come up on this uh, in, in response to this report, in that a lot of the focus on on the food system at the moment is about rising food prices and um, and access to food and so on. And and I was worried that some of the responses to this report might be, well, OK, it causes deforestation. But is that our biggest problem at the moment? But I, I, I think. Obviously, these are all linked together, um, and, and essentially, this is a very complex system which is under a lot of strain for various reasons. It's under strain for climate change reasons. It's under strain because we're focusing on a smaller, 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 and smaller number of crops. Some uh, parts of the supply chain are focused on a much smaller uh, range of companies. So the whole system is kind of under more pressure uh, and much more vulnerable. If we do have a, a shock, such as is happening in Ukraine you then see uh, uh, ripples go across the system. Um, how deforestation fits into that is that this is another risk to the system. It's a, it's a risk that I think is, is uh, on the whole, is being under, underestimated by many. Um, and hopefully uh, this report and other information around this is sort of highlighting that this is yet another stress on the system um, that is gonna cause shocks like are happening in Ukraine are gonna be even more shocks in the future if these risks aren't addressed. Thanks very much indeed. Um, next question, one from Simon Hall. Um, he wonders uh, the barriers to uh, progress. So barriers to getting companies to set commitments, transparently disclose progress performance and accelerate and scale credible implementation. Let's think about commitments first. Leah, what do you see as the key barriers to seeing more robust commitments? Um, it's a, a great question and I think, you know, is, is uh, something that could be answered through many hours. Um, but I mean, I think, I think one piece of it is that um, because, you know, in the past we have not seen a lot of um, real sort of accountability for companies actually um, achieving their commitments and sort of any real incentives for, for doing so. I think there is a feeling that there's only sort of downside risk for putting these commitments out there um, because we're, um, the system is not well set up to provide real sort of incentives for, for progress and for, for recognition of, of sort of progress against those commitments. So I think that really sort of say, you know, providing, um, providing a, a structure in which those commitments, there's accountability for those commitments, there's recognition for progress in meaningful ways, and in which those are, are really tied in with, with other commitments, such as companies' climate commitments that they're making. So those things can all be seen as, you know, of a piece in terms of what companies are really being expected to do as, as sort of operators in, the, um, in a sort of responsible market. So I think that's one piece of a much bigger question, but I'd love to hear other answers on this too. Indeed, there's a conference of material in the answer to this question. Um, <laughs> uh, Katrina, do you want to answer just a little bit about, I mean, add to the comments you made already about the challenges or barriers to getting companies to be more transparent in their disclosures and performance? Yeah, so I think we um, we speak to a range of different clients. They're all on on a very you know some clients are super advanced in terms of mon having monitoring systems in place in order to collect the data and do disclosure that actually provides meaningful information to us like finances and and investors. Others are at the beginning of, of of this journey. Um, I spoke to a client the other day, for example, that had lots of questions around you know where do they start? How do they gather their sustainability report? So it you know depending on um, the size of the organization, um, how much. They've been exposed to this, like um, I think, like Tom was saying, there's been a lot of work on disclosure for a very long time, and then suddenly it's everywhere. So in Brazil, for example, um, banks now, we the financial sector is being regulated to do better disclosure. So we also have to improve the disclosure all the way down to the transaction level in terms of um, climate risks, environmental risks, social risks, and we will have to rely on the disclosure of our clients in order to be able to report that kind of data. So I think um, some of the barriers are, you know, the internal monitoring systems, um, lack of, of, you know, aligned standards between different sectors. Um, often we'll see different de um, deforestation reports reporting on different kinds of data using different types of method methodology as well. So there's that kind of noise which I think exists, and Lee and I have spoken about this before. Um, how do you get aligned methodolo methodology on, the, on different types of disclosures? So I think, um, again, like 
the work that CDP is doing right now and also with with um, information from like the AFI, we should hopefully see and, you know, an uptick in better disclosure, uh, more aligned disclosure um, and greater transparency. Tom, you can come in, but just very, very briefly, 10 seconds. Just very briefly, just because this is a question on barriers, it's one of the questions that we do ask in that questionnaire. So I thought you'd want to hear what the, uh, the companies say. That, that the, the key barriers that are being identified are the, the cost of certification is, is the top one, the complexity of supply chains is, is the second one, and the lack of market demand and awareness is the third uh, barrier. Thank you very much indeed. Um, Julianne, just on that, I mean, and it relates to another question we have on data sharing. What do you, um, how do you, or how easy is it for you to, to share data between, with, with, with peers? And are there any barriers that can be overcome? Uh, it really depends on what are the type of data, because there are a lot of data that is shared through the sector. Uh, actually, there are a lot of research that is being doing by the sector and use, all the companies use the same data. The other data that is collected by each company that has a, 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 a regulation by GDPR, like GDPR, then you have to be responsible for those information and you cannot share uh, uh, that in an easy way. So it really depends on the type of information and what are the ones that you can present from a, a public uh, uh, report and others that you can present to your clients from a confident agreement or something like that. Uh, we have our own uh, uh, system that our own uh, verification process that is origins that we are able to share with our clients a lot of information from where are they, they are sorting from. But this needs to include the responsibility that we, we have according to regulation and GDPR rules and other, other issues. Thanks very much. I I'd like a very quick response from Leah, if I may, just on one, one, uh, one final question. Um, many commodities rely on traceability systems, such as mass balance, that cannot provide full chain of custody. What, how do you think such supply chain um, techniques can be transformed towards full chain of custody schemes? What's the kind of, the, what are the tips there? Very, very briefly, please. Absolutely, and I think I touched on this a little bit earlier, but I mean, I think sort of a couple of pathways are one, um, you know, as Juliana said, um, you know, it, addressing, it does help address a much broader suite of sustainability needs and shows sort of, um, sort of desire and interest in improving on, on a range of topics to, to stakeholders. I think it also can um, provide more pressure on, incent on schemes themselves to increasingly deliver certified product, which, um, you know, has identified, identified as a barrier um, and can also help uh, companies meet sort of interim targets on the path towards uh, sort of a full deforestation free supply chain. So it's it's sort of not an end of itself, but it can sort of be a, a stepping stone on the way to a number of different goals. Okay, thank you. I'm conscious we're getting close to our end. So I do want to um, to tie things together by asking each, each of the panel to give us their key thing that they were taking away from our discussion over the last hour. Juliana, you go first. You were going to come in that, that just now, but perhaps give us you're, in, in answering my question, make your point. But yes, please, what are you taking away from the last hour? Uh, I think the discussion is very important, but the actions are the most important ones right now. So what I would say that uh, goes to the ones that are acting and try to fit the best as you can. Just one small comment. If mass balance does not, does not deliver that enough, it's because you do not have a big uh, demand. If you have 100% of demand of sustainable products, you have almost a segregated process. So just demand. Thank you very much. Um, Katarina. Sure, I think from a financing perspective, I think there's a real sense of urgency to really understand, you know, how is financing, you know, contributing or not contributing to the risks that actually are driving deforestation or is driving um, climate change. Um, as Tom mentioned, right, you know, we're, we're at a very critical stage of certain ecosystems. So we need to, one, um, have the disclosure helps us to make better financial decisions and at the same time identify opportunities that we can integrate into new financial products that can actually support, for example, nature-based solutions and restoration efforts. Great. Thank you. Uh, Tom? 
So I think for me, there's a, a risk you can look at the sort of gap of what we're saying is where we are now, where we need to be and get a little bit despondent. But I think the more sort of positive thing, positive thing to take away is that the report shows and the discussion today shows that everything that we're saying needs to happen is being done somewhere. Someone can do it. These are not, diff well, they're difficult. They're not impossible things to influence. Um, and it's all about put, getting the pressure to, to do what we know needs to be done. Thank you very much indeed. Leah, final word to you. Thanks so much. I would just say that I think this discussion has made really clear that there's a huge range of new and increasing pressures on companies from policy, from regulation, from increased disclosure requirements, a lot of, um, a lot of those surrounding climate in addition to forests. And you know, I think the, this report really shows that um, companies can are in a huge range of places in terms of their ability to meet those needs, can often look to their peers and to leading companies for, for the tools to do that. As Tom said, it's being done somewhere. Um, and that is really sort of an all hands on deck moment for us to figure out how to scale up these systems to meet these challenges. So Great. thanks everyone. No, thank you very much indeed. Um, I'm gonna draw things to a close. I'm conscious that we're going over time already, which is the golden rule not to do. So apologies uh, if for some of you have, um, have, are missing some of your other calls. So thanks very much indeed. Um, thank you to our panel for their time um, and for answering all the questions. I know they've answered some questions uh, by typing answers as well. So you can check those out on the uh, answer questions uh, tab. And my thanks also to AFI for supporting this webinar. We'll be in touch to share audio and video recordings uh, so you can watch or listen again at your leisure and share with your colleagues. Do head for the Innovation Forum website for more webinars, podcasts and insights, along with all the details of our upcoming conference programme. And if you're attending our online Future of Climate Action event in a couple of weeks, I look forward to seeing you then. But for now, I hope you found the webinar useful. I've been Ian Welsh and thank you for joining us and goodbye.